What is the best word to describe a negative psychological and emotional response to a terrible event? Well, I think we'd all select the word trauma. Now, we may wonder what can be done to get free of a traumatic experience and its lingering effects. Today, we will consider post-traumatic thriving. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. All my life, watching America. All my life, panic in America. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. Welcome to Watching America. I am delighted to say that my guest is a master. A master of what, you wonder? A master of disaster. I know, I know, it sounds like a, a wrestler of some sort. No, this is a very highly educated gentleman who actually has a background in economics and sociology and a PhD, no less. But his skill is going to disaster areas and being a consultant. This work has caused him to visit 50 states and seven continents. He's too ahead of me. I've only got five. His research has been uh, vast. Uh, he's worked on such cases as Nicole Brown Simpson's condominium and been in Boulder, Colorado, working on the John Benet Ramsey situation and case there. He was no stranger to uh, concern about Sandy Hook Elementary School, of course, in Connecticut. Uh, moreover, he has also looked at natural disasters such as Hurricane Katrina. He has had some challenges in his own life. He was born with congenital heart defects and he underwent surgery at the age of 10, so he is no stranger to challenges himself. He said, and I quote, I can say the world is a tough place. I'm in a pretty good position to tell it as it is. However, I rather focus on telling it as it can be. Well, with that in mind, he is a person who wants to instill confidence and really to examine the idea of, of strength, where strength can be derived. So Dr. Randall Bell is my guest. His latest book is entitled Post-Traumatic Thriving, The Art, Science and Stories of Resilience. Welcome, Dr. Randall Bell, to Watching America. Alan, it's, a, it's an absolute honor to be speaking with you. Well, I want to, first of all, um, ask you how you got to a position where you realize that one has really no option but to tackle that which goes wrong. Uh, some of us never learn that lesson um, and can be defeatist. Some of us can have a kind of ingrained learned hopelessness. But in your case, there was something inside you that innately perhaps said, I have to move on. I have to get beyond this. And uh, indeed, you underwent surgery, as I've said at the outset, at 10 years of age for a congenital heart defect. What did you learn at the age of 10 and thereafter? Well, frankly, Alan, I learned the wrong way to handle a trauma because, you know, in, in school, at least where I'm from in Southern California, there there's no training or education on trauma recovery. And yet that's the number one problem that uh, faces humankind. And so what I learned was, was to do the wrong things, to not talk about it, to stuff it down, stuff the feelings down uh, hard, to uh, be embarrassed and ashamed of it. And I, I made all the classic mistakes, quite frankly. And so I'm a, I'm a great guinea pig in, in showing um, not just the right way to do things eventually, but also I adopted all the bad decisions that a lot of people make when they've undergone some kind of trauma. Well, it's very easy to uh, cast dispersions and to judge others, indeed, unless we've walked in their shoes. Um, but we do always hear the story of, you know, the equivalent of two brothers. And uh, in the words, uh, going back to a song from the 1960s, uh, uh, A Family Affair was the name of the song. Um, you have, you know, one child just loves to learn and the other child you just want to burn. And Sly and the Family Stone came up with that one. Um, but we do <laughs> see that manifested. Uh, do you think it's an innate thing that causes some people to uh, develop survival methods? Or do you think it's the luck of the draw? Do you think it's environmental? Or do you think it's, uh, uh, I guess, a deterministic thing? 
That's such a fascinating question. There's some great research that came out of the University of Riverside in California on that topic. And about half of our happiness is, is attributed to our DNA. I, I happen to have uh, good DNA, but not everybody does. Uh, but DNA accounts for about half of it as far as the question of, on uh, inert. Um, 40%, well, I'll get to 40%, 10% of what causes or results in our happiness is what happens to us, only 10%. But 40% of our happiness is dependent on the activities we choose, the habits we adapt, and in you know doing things that are scientifically correlated with, with happiness is a great way to kind of break out of that funk and, and that depression and those things. So it's a mix of things, but uh, the good news is we have 40% total control over the situation with with the activities we choose. I want to ask you about some, uh, I mean, we're going to go all over the place with this interview, so I'm very excited, but I, I, I want to walk, uh, talk about a, a, a physical aspect to, to happiness. In Britain, there's a, a term called happy clappy, uh, and it refers to people who are uh, perhaps artificially um, working themselves up to convince themselves that they're happier than they actually are. That's one of the interpretations of the expression, happy clappy. And yet we do know that if we smile, um, there is a, a, a change, a physiological, biological change, at least in our, our, our psyche. Uh, because we're smiling, it's as though our, if you will, our consciousness wants to uh, go along and oblige that. Um, where does the issue of being authentic versus merely trying to pretend to be better than one is or healed when in fact they may not be? What a wonderful question. Happy clappy is indeed the kind of the superficial masking the pain. We don't want to do that. There's so many, many ways to um, self-medicate and, you know, have so-called happiness through materialism or alcoholism or workaholism. There's all kinds of ways to kind of mask the pain. And that's not a healthy approach. But on the other hand, being, being uh, authentic really takes us from the self-medication to the self-care. That's where we're respectful of ourselves. But in that respect, we also just deal with realities and other people's realities. So I guess the person who's more in the self-care um, mode may come across not quite as happy, but more grounded, more foundationally stable. Um, and that's where I think you're going to find more authentic happiness is, is kind of switching off the artificial uh, self-medication and, and migrate more towards self-care and things that bring authentic a connection with others and, and uh, a grounded sense of happiness. I think we've all possibly had the experience of going to a doctor with some malady uh, and perhaps if it's uh, like an urgent care situation, either an emergency room or these 24-hour places, and we're asked to tabulate the pain we're in and so, you know, rate it from 1 to 10. Um, and I always think that's rather spurious, well-intended, but spurious because you, you're going to have people who, you know, just ask any dentist uh, a DDS and they'll have people who, you know, haven't even had anything put on their gum yet. You know, oh, I mean, I can pay, I got. And then other people uh, who can have virtually root canal and just uh, literally practically grin and bear it. Um, in your work and your experience dealing with particularly the aftermath of a disaster, be it a murder situation or 9-11 um, as you were involved with uh, Shanksville and the World Trade Center and what have you. Um, how do you discern the true level of somebody's suffering? I think that that's a question up to the individual. I, I think that uh, we have to be honest with ourselves. It's, it's the same thing with critical thinking skills and, and, and the skill sets involved in building a nice foundation it's a self-assessment and, you know, you can, you know, people can lie to others, but lying to yourself, we, we do that too, but really to do what we talk about in the book in terms of going from the dive stage to the survive stage to the thrive stage, uh, there's no way around it. You have to be honest with yourself. So in terms of somebody else assessing it, you know, the, the doctors in your example, uh, he or she doesn't know, they, they, they're dependent upon the patient being honest so that they can prescribe the, the correct medications for pain and, and everything else. So if we're going to be, you know, uh, lying to ourselves, we're never going to be healing from our traumas. And that's what we got to do. So we, we just simply got to wake up and, and get honest about it all. 
Well, let's examine that. That's exactly where I was going to go next, was the three stages of your, of your framework as you put it in your book. And incidentally, the book is entitled, again, Post-Traumatic Thriving, The Art, Science and Stories of Resilience by Dr. Randall Bell. Um, take us through those stages. Now, you say we shouldn't be embarrassed or uh, uh, reticent to acknowledge uh, shock, depression, and anger. We have to acknowledge these things in order to get well. But there is uh, not necessarily a prescriptive pattern all the time, but there are certain stages that are, are, are typical. The dive, survive, and thrive. Could you address the dive stage first? Sure. I, that's essentially the five stages of grief that we've, you know, many of us have heard about for the quite Elizabeth, a while. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Yeah. yeah. Exa- bingo. Exactly. And um, it usually starts with shock. And, you know, I was in shock when I was told at a very young age, I needed open heart surgery. And I, I still remember that, but that's, you know, the shock, the denial, the anger, the bargaining, the depression, the, the key issue with all of those is that they are natural. They are actually nature's way of protecting us from being overwhelmed by the trauma. And so the, the mindset that I take is don't be, um, no one should ever be ashamed that they're depressed or that they're in denial or, or angry, as long as you're not hurting yourself or hurting others. Those are all natural emotions. And, and frankly, they're healthy as long as we don't get stuck there. So it's okay to be angry after a, a trauma. Um, again, we don't want to hurt anybody, including ourselves. But but if it lingers more than a month or two or three, we need to seek professional help. But never uh, feel bad for those emotions because that's nature's way of protecting us from the uh, from from the full brunt of the trauma. So let me go back to the actual word dive. Um, I'm trying to uh, assess how it's being applied here. A dive as if, you know, going from uh, terra firma above ground to the bottom of a swimming pool. Dive as if jumping out of a plane. Dive as as far as acknowledging your emotions. Is the dive the uh, initial trauma I'm trying to assess? Yeah, the, the word dive is is where you're knocked down by the trauma. Okay. Usually we're going along just fine and we get knocked down and uh, and the trauma owns us at that point. Okay, so uh, the goal at this point is to try and find a way to submerge in some regard. Okay, so then we go from dive to survive. Uh, and I'm sure there's many different roads that will take us to Rome. How, what are some of the options to go from the desperate situation, the shock situation, the debilitated situation, to even perhaps even entertaining the notion initially that in fact one may actually survive this traumatic event, whatever it may be? Yeah, Alan, the whole idea with the survive stage is to get back on our feet. Uh, dive knocks us down off our feet metaphorically or maybe literally, but to survive, we get back on our feet. We do that for, by one, confronting the situation. I call it, well, I don't call it, I learned up in San Quentin prison where the inmates taught me, they call it sitting in the fire. That's having honest conversations with a trusted person, whether it's be a therapist or a good friend or a family member, someone who can be trusted to tell our feelings. If we don't share our feelings with somebody, we start an internal war with trauma. We don't want that. We want healing. And and trauma recovery is not a solo exercise. It's not a do-it-yourself, you know, experiment. There, there are that uh, we've got to reach out and accept help from others. We've also got to sort things out and untangle the guilt and our our, our own wrongdoing, if if indeed there was, versus shame, which are things that are imposed on us that we did we did not absolutely nothing wrong. And ultimately, we want to land on kind of exploring different avenues, um, new life skills, maybe new hobbies, new work. Uh, new surroundings, whatever it is, to kind of uh, deal with the situation in a healthy, constructive way. Like you, um, I've been to San Quentin. I used to live in Marin County in California, uh, a town called Mill Valley. And so I had occasion to go up to San Quentin. When you're dealing with people who basically cannot get out of their environment, they have to reframe it, rethink it. Uh, how did you work with uh, with inmates at, at that point uh, with that strategy? Well, the the training and, and exercises I went through as a volunteer there really depend are based on two things. One is I just mentioned it, sitting in the fire. It's it's talking about things. What you I, I'm sure you noticed with a lot of the inmates, uh, over ninety percent of them, what they did is horrible, and, and there's no excusing that. But what happened to them as children is equally or even more horrific. So you have to talk about 
um, taking responsibility. And you also have to talk about um, the ugly things from the past to kind of heal from that. Um, and then the other one is what we call grounding in San Quentin. Now that's grounding is just a word for meditation, yoga, deep breathing, Lamaze. There's lots of words, but the science that's come out of Harvard University with Sarah Lazar in particular, uh, deep breathing exercises directly correlates with brain growth. You can actually do brain scans and she has done that to show the growth in the healthy area of the brains with simple deep breathing exercises. So the work out of San Quentin is really based on those that dynamic duel of sitting in the fire and grounding. And um, of course, I'm, I'm, I don't mean to be over, oversimplifying the process. And frankly, the process takes a, a year or two or three, but it does work. And uh, it's based on those two uh, principles. And then thrive, uh, the third stage, hopefully that people may be able to get to. Uh, what makes that distinct from just surviving? Well, first, I want to say my hat's off. I have a lot of respect for people to simply survive and get back on their feet. That That's an accomplishment. And I don't mean to um, suggest anything other than that. But my eye in working on all these disasters around the world is to is to really focus on those who as it's as if the, the trauma woke them up and gave them a sense of strength that they didn't even know they had that was dormant. And they tapped into that that energy of the trauma, because let's face it, trauma you know, produces a lot of energy, but they use that fuel to do something really remarkable. And the, the basic five elements that I found there is faith, whether it be in God or a spirituality or in nature and humanity, but something uh, larger than ourselves, um, connecting with, with uh, support, you know, people that will support us, um, a discussion of forgiveness and dispelling the myths of forgive and forget, uh, and, and dealing with forgiveness as a, as a way to kind of uh, move forward. And then resilience, where we reframe, set goals. And ultimately, people that thrive have a, almost a sense of gratitude for their trauma. Not that, uh, for my example, I'm never grateful that I had open heart surgery as a kid, but I'm grateful for the lessons. I'm grateful that today I'm far more empathetic towards children in tough places because I live that. I, I don't have to guess what it was like. I've lived it. And so I'm grateful for that, uh, that empathy. And that's what the spectrum of thriving kind of entails. I've always been inclined to think, and I'm, I'm ready to be corrected by you, Dr. Randall Bell, uh, that people who have suffered to me, and maybe it's a superficial assessment and it's unwarranted and not justifiable, but uh, I do like to be around people who have suffered. Um, I like to be around people that we typically say have, have depth, and um, that's not to say that everyone who suffers grows and learns from it, uh, to be sure. But there is some degree of comfort uh, to be with those who have uh, gone through a couple of battles. Um, I find them more attractive uh, because I think, okay, they've, they've experienced and there's greater empathy and sympathy, uh, not just for oneself, but for others. And um, it's a wonderful place to be. But some people don't arrive there. Why, why do you suppose that might be? Well, Alan, I, I think your comment's exactly right. I mean, Buddha himself said that life is suffering, and I, I think he's largely right. It's also uh, life can be full of joy. But I think I, I, the way I would answer that is right now there's a woman in L.A. Her name is Erica Leon. She went through the Holocaust, and um, she's 100 years old as we speak. Hmm. And Erica... Erica, I asked her a question like that, and she said, you know, and I asked her, how, why was it she was so upbeat? She wasn't happy clappy. It was a, there was an authentic joy in her, in her soul, and she did beautiful artwork, and I have a number of her uh, oil paintings in my office. They're just gorgeous, and I said, how is it that you are always so enjoyable to be with, and yet you went through such a horrific background and she basically said it was a choice. I used the clouds to appreciate the sunshine. And um, that's how she put it. And I think that's how people resonate. And I, I agree with you, Alan, 100%. People that have really been through it and, and handled their difficulties in a dignified, intelligent way and an authentic way are really enjoyable to be with because there's a sense of uh, a grounding there. Um, as opposed to those who just kind of slap band-aids on everything. Your book is intended to help, uh, to help people through crises, uh, but also to, to help them uh, navigate their lives uh, favorably. 
One of the things I'm interested in very much, even though I, I, I lecture and teach at the university level, graduate and undergraduate, uh, I'm also now becoming increasingly interested in high schools uh, because you really can amend and change the trajectory of young people's lives by teaching them how to survive, how to, to view things differently. You're very interested in what you call core IQ. Can you explain that and uh, share how that manifests itself in your activity and what you want to do to change and amend lives and, and things which may be awry, which can be corrected? Well, sure. Thanks for asking, Alan. Core IQ is my uh, passion. It's it's skills that we all need that we're not taught in school. The trauma recovery, which we've we've discussed, is is one of those. Um, critical thinking is another skill. Negotiation skills, money management, goal setting. These are all things we need to have, and that we paid when I was with Price Coopers. Um, we paid thousands of dollars a day for experts to come in and teach these skills to us. And it, and it occurred to me when I was at the firm that these are skills we all need, not just executives, you know, making big decisions. But I, I want my kids to have it. I want everybody's kids to have access to these, the skill set. And so um, I funded myself. The business world's been, been pretty good to me. So I funded myself Core IQ, and that's what it does. Anybody can go online anywhere in the world and get these skill sets, anything from goal setting to time management, and there's never a charge. Um, it's all, all, all available at no cost. So what is the address online if they want to find this? CoreIQ.com. CoreIQ.com. Uh, yeah. work, working with young people and, uh, and trying to instill, uh, if you will, uh, in, in the most uh, effective and positive sense of survival technique, there have been many lives which you've used as an example where people have actually uh, taken that which was uh, negative and turned it into a positive. One of which is a gentleman who historically is very important to me, at least musically, by the name of Leo Fender, as I have uh, a treasured Telecaster and Stratocaster. Tell us about him <laughs> and his background and, and how he uh, basically revolutionized the world with uh, electric guitars. Well, I love the topic. Leo Fender lived two streets from me. I grew up in a little town called Fullerton, California, and I, I love the Fender family. They're, they're wonderful. Leo was very, very quiet, but Mrs. Fender never met a microphone she didn't love, and she shared her story with me. I, I, I wrote a book. It's titled Leo Fender. Leo Fender um, uh, was, he was born in a barn, literally, in an orange grove um, uh, in Fullerton, and then... <laughs> And then as a, at the age of eight, he, tragedy struck. He fell on a picket fence and he had an eye out. And then a little later on, he started a radio shop up on Harbor Boulevard and his hearing was blown out with an amplifier. So he was half blind and, and mostly deaf. And he went on to invent the Telecaster. And I, I'm, I, I, I love the fact you've got one, Alan. Um, and then he invented the Stratocaster. He literally revolutionized the world of music with his inventions of the electric guitar. And he, I studied him very carefully in writing this book, along with other people that are equally as amazing. And the techniques we talked about in terms of he, he entrusted all his uh, private conversations with his wife. He didn't really speak with anyone else about that, but he had a trusted person he could talk to, which is sitting in the fire. And his morning meditation practice was he'd turn on a hot tub, scolding hot water, and sit in the tub for an hour and contemplate guitars and his life and, and all things he needed to do to accomplish the things he did. So the principles we're talking about were really used by him. Um, and you're, and he, what he's done is just absolutely brilliant. Keith Richards uh, endorsed the book, and, and it's been just a great conversation. But the real meaning is that we know he invented the guitar. We know he revolutionized music. But the, what, what I get into is what was he like as a person, and how did he handle his traumas in a productive way? And if there's ever a post-traumatic thriver, it's Leo Fender. <laughs> Well, you know, the, the the evolution of the guitar in the first place with the detachable neck, I mean, I don't want to get too much into it, but every musician knows that it, it, you could always modify the neck, and the, you know, which you, you couldn't do necessarily with other guitars, uh, certainly. And so um, it was just a complete new way of thinking about guitars. The butterscotch, for those listening, if you've uh, ever seen a country a twangy uh, performer, 
uh, with a, a butterscotch-looking guitar. That is the tally that we're talking about, which was beloved. And if you can get the earlier models, it's 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 highly prized. And Keith Richards removing the uh, the low E string, uh, playing with five string. Um, uh, it's it's just the guitar, the guitar for so many, and the Stratocaster of. Of, uh, anyone thinks of a guitar, what it looks like, electric, you automatically think of the Stratocaster. Um, what gave the grit to this man to keep going despite the limitations? Uh, obviously, he had his wife to help him and he relied on her heavily. But what was the core element? And by the way, Fullerton, California, uh, I think of Beach Boys right away. Yeah, Fullerton is Fullerton is a mecca center for all kinds of musicians. Um, I could go on all day with the people I went to high school with. Um and and Leo was really kind of the epicenter, but uh, with his inventions, and he was it was all versatility. Leo was driven by a passion, and he had a dream as a young child, and he felt that um, his purpose in life was to create guitars whom God referred to as mu- musicians. And the, the basic idea is the world's a tough place, and music makes it better. And that's what was the passion that drove. Leo Fender to do what he did was a sense of mission and passion uh, over music. So that's that's really the core of what drove him. Well, there's other personalities um, that you talk about. Uh, for instance, a convicted murderer who, of all things, winds up becoming a clergy person. Share that with us. Well, I met JC up in San Quentin, and uh, yeah, he had a tough childhood, and he spent 22 years in San Quentin, but he was paroled, and he... Uh, had all the uh, all the drive that we talk about in the book. In fact, I interviewed him extensively. I just attended JC's college graduation, and he graduated with honors. And I'll be honest with you, Alan, I did not graduate with honors. <laughs> but, Nor but did JC I. Did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's be honest. Yeah. And JC did. Now he's earning his PhD. He's married, has a child. He's in the clergy. I, I uh, not only would I trust him, I do trust him because he does all of my firm's uh, in-house training and he's brilliant. And uh, and again, the principles we talked about, uh, frankly, I learned a lot of them from JC in terms of grounding exercises and sitting in the fire and other uh, things about eight total um, in terms of different uh, choices you can make to thrive. And uh, JC just kind of personif- personifies them. Uh, yeah, surely one must have an incredible sense of hopelessness as being a convicted murderer. I mean, you, you don't see a way out. And, of course, there would be a chorus of people listening right now and saying, yes, rightfully so. Um, but to, to be able to turn that around, what was the sparkle, the little element where he thought uh, this fouled up life can be corrected? Yeah, I, I loved what you said earlier, Alan, about, you know, reaching out to the high school kids. I think that was a spark that really, you know, uh, drove uh, and still drives JC's decisions because he spends a lot of times, uh, a lot of time with kids in the um, kind of fringes of society that are at that vulnerable age. Are they going to deal drugs? Are they going to go to college um, or go to trade school or or something productive? And he, I think the drive is he sees a lot in himself and a lot of these kids that were in these kind of uh, very tough, you know, childhoods and reaching out to them and saying, hey, look, I, I hit the bottom of the path. You don't want to go down the path I went through. But the, the kids listen to him in a way that they will not listen to me. That's for sure. And and he has a special gift. He has a special experience. And no matter how far we go in terms of a bad path, we can always turn around. And JC um, knows that. And that's what drives him to, to do what he does. Well, I want to look at another entity, another person in a moment. But before I go any further, lest we get besieged with letters and emails from guitar enthusiasts. Yes, the Les Paul guitar is a worthy guitar and no one's disputing that. However, the work of Leo Fender is better. <laughs> I'm going to be hated. Well, uh, that's great. You know, I'll tell you, Alan, Leo, just so everybody can be friends here, Leo Fender and Les Paul were friends. I know. They collaborated. Yes. And they, yeah. they respected each other. We can, we can all do that. And yeah. I, I love Gibson, too. <laughs> well, um, let's, uh, let's look at a new personality. But before I do, let me remind our audience you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell, and I'm so delighted to have a socio economist, if you will, uh, expert on disaster, the master of disaster, uh, of analysis of when things go wrong and how to make them better, Dr. Randall Bell, the author of Post-Traumatic Thriving, The Art, Science and Stories of Resilience. Now, speaking of a story of resilience, 
Um, one of the most disheartening things, um, there is a, a biblical uh, verse that says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. And if there, there ever was a case of that, it would be the uh, potential Olympian man who, due to circumstances beyond his control, had practiced and, and studied uh, a great, great sacrifice of hours and ability not to have it come to fruition. So there's a, a unique type of pain where our dreams, if you will, are, are more or less stillborn and they don't come to fruition and it can haunt forever. Would you mind telling us the story of the uh, would-be Olympiad? Sure. Well, that's my friend, Tom. I went to college with him. That's where we met. And he had practiced in, um, his entire life for the Olympics, particularly in uh, shot put. That's what he was expert in. And uh, he was natural. Uh, he was national champion. He was on the path and he was um, going to the Olympics. And then Jimmy Carter uh, pulled out with the whole issue with the Russians and so forth. And uh, he was devastated. I mean, to spend your whole life and forgo all kinds of school parties and dances and girlfriends and just focus on your sport as he did, um, it, that was that was pretty rough. And he went through everything we talked about in terms of shock and denial and anger and uh, bargaining and depression. He 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 lived all of that. But you know, as healthy people do, he didn't land there and stay there. He kept he kept progressing. And he put that fuel and that energy and that, um, uh, like we talked about, and he decided to use it for something good. I can just tell you, Tom today has 10 distribution facilities around the world. It's, it's an incredibly large business. But more important than that, he loves his employees. I mean, he, he knows everybody by name. You go through the plant and he talks to everybody. He talks about their kids and he knows who's having a hard time and he goes out of his way to privately do things for them to make life more comfortable. And so it's more than a distribution facility network. It's really a way to employ people and give them a sense of purpose and, and have, allow them the, the dignity of raising their families in, in, a, in a comfortable lifestyle with secure jobs. And that's that's how he kind of turned it around from something very negative to something very positive. And I'll tell you, there's there's no one on the planet you'd rather hang out with. He's just a really uh, kind, terrific human being. One of the themes of your book is to take from the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune uh, that which can be culled and brought forth to produce good. Uh, a national example of this would be the sister of Nicole Brown Simpson uh, and how she has uh, decided to channel this tremendous loss in her life uh, to the benefit of others. Can you tell us about that? Well, sure. I, I think you're referring to Tanya Brown. Tanya and Denise and Dominique are sisters of Nicole. And, uh, you know, they they had just this idyllic Southern California lifestyle. They lived by the beach in Monarch uh, Bay, which is just down the street from where I live. And, um, you know, of course, the family was not only beautiful, but they were beautiful inside. They invited everybody into their home. They were just a warm, welcoming uh, family. And then this devastation with their sister, Nicole, uh, being murdered. We could argue about who did it, but, but we know that she was brutally murdered. And that was horrific. And I'll never forget the day I... Um, I was working with Lou Brown, the father, and he invited me to the home and I was at the kitchen table and along with the, the, uh, his wife, Judy and the daughters. And I had the sudden realization that I was sitting in Nicole's seat. I was sitting in the empty seat created by the loss of their daughter. Wow. And that, that really hit me. Mm. And I, I, uh, so I saw the, I saw the depression. I saw the everything else, but I'll never forget the moment, Alan, where, Denise, she just was really, and Denise is a nice, uh, kind, fun person, but she was obviously very upset over this. And she was upset there at the table. And then she had this moment, I'll never forget, where this look came over her face and she said, I'm going to channel all my anger and all my energy into educating women who are in abusive relationships. And, and I've got access now to the top experts on um, abuse and, and spousal abuse, and I'm going to educate people. And she did. And I've been to many events where women came up to her and, and thanked her profusely for giving them the courage to get out of these ugly, toxic relationships. So that's post-traumatic thriving. That's 
in a nutshell, the anger is there and the outrage is there and the horrific nature of the crime is there, but there's a decision to channel it into something positive, and that's exactly what Denise personifies. Randall, uh, as you are well aware, to get people in a position where you can actually help them, they have to decide to let you in. How have you been able to be granted the license, such as the case with uh, Nicole Brownson's sisters uh, and others, to let you in so that you can be of benefit and help to them? Alan, I've learned the power of listening. I don't have all the answers. The more I've been to college and schools, the more I realize I don't know, but I am willing to sit within the fire and listen. And for some reason, God's given me a high tolerance for um, listening to traumatic situations uh, where I don't tip tables over and scream and run out of the room. I, I can I can take it. I can listen. It's difficult, but I can do it. And so, for example, when I worked on the Bikini Atoll in the nuclear weapons test site, uh, there was a group of us by the dock, but off in the distance, I saw a man sitting by himself on a coconut tree log, and I thought, I, I'm... He, he looks lonely. So I just went up and I said hello and introduced myself and and just listened. And he had an incredible story about losing his daughter to the nuclear radiation from, from the nuclear test there that I was working on. And, um, and so hopefully by just simply sitting there and not dispensing flawed anecdotal advice, but just simply being there to listen, that is what can help people, others uh, heal, to some degree at least. At the outset of our conversation, the beginning of the program, uh, I had posed the the question about people registering their own pain on a, on a graph from one to 10 when they go to an emergency room, etc. Uh, so the fact is, is that, you know, we, we, we have to understand people feel what they feel and everything is relative. The five-year-old literally will cry over spilt milk. Uh, hopefully, we hope they advance by the time they get to 15. But the the issue is, is that we all have varying degrees of tolerance uh, for, for pain. What I'm curious uh, in relation to all of the exposure that you've had to misery, has it caused you to recalibrate your tolerance for pain? Yes, and I'm very aware of it, and I'm very, I'm very much aware that I have a unique career, and I that's why I'm located by the beach because the beach is kind of the counterbalance to all of this. My my office is um, on the ocean, and it's there because not just me, my team, my staff, um, we go down to the beach to have lunch. Um, the beach really has, for, for me at least, has a very calming influence. So it's it's important that we all have. Be, be aware of our thresholds, be aware of our limits and respect those and back off when we start pushing the needle and have a, a deliberate game plan of whatever, whether it's a beach or reading or a, uh, whatever it is, going to the pub, something to, to kind of take the pressure off so that we live in balance. Well, there are people listening to us who may up to this point have said, well, this is all well and good. Dr. Randall Bell and Dr. Alan Campbell, but um, you've been speaking somewhat uh, anecdotally and and uh, uh, narratively about different persons and events. But right now, I have just been whacked in my life with something I never envisioned, never anticipated. I have it. It's in my lap. It never leaves me every day. And they're thinking to themselves, Dr. Randall Bell, what do I do? Well, I would first say I'm very sorry, and I I don't I haven't been through what you've been through, so I don't pretend that I I have been, and I appreciate the the fact that a big part of human experience is suffering, as we talked about. However, uh, when the time is right, it's important to realize that there is very real science. A lot of uh, very bright people have dedicated their lives to understanding how to resolve trauma, particularly childhood trauma. And the science has, it's kind of like anesthesia. I mean, people of yesteryear had to go through painful experiences without anesthesia. Today, we have the benefit of, of medicine that makes uh, things better in that regard. The same thing is true with trauma recovery. There's new science and, and established science that can help. And you're not alone. And I would say when the time is ready, 
go through the principles in my book or some other books or other great books on the topic and really study up on it and learn the science and also listen to the stories of people that have really been through similar situations. Um, your trauma may be worse. It may be better. It's not a competition. So everybody's trauma is valid, but learn from uh, the stories of people that have been knocked down and see how, how they did it and maybe take a look and be open to exploring some of those things as they might apply in your lives. Do you have any um, practical, not to imply at all that what you've said previously has is, is not been practical, but let's say um, applicable uh, things that one may do. Let me give you an example. In the north of England, where I come from, uh, when anything went wrong, it was typical that somebody in the family would say, right then, make a cup of tea. And you would just make a cup of tea. That would be step one. Now, you don't, <laughs> you might not know what step two, three, four, and 5,068 is, but at least step one was, right, make a cup of tea. And you, and you would do that. Um, one of the things I've shared with many people who have been uh, discouraged over the years is I, I've tried to emphasize to them, remember, this is like a book and the pages will turn and turn and turn. And then eventually you'll be in a new chapter. Uh, and uh, that gives a glimmer of hope. And I think it's also very, very honest. I mean, that's uh, been my experience at least, is that we go through very dire and difficult times. But if you can just hold on and turn the pages, I, I always think it's tragic that so many people take their lives uh, because they can't envision that things can get better. And if they would just hold on just a tad longer, very often the circumstance does change. Um, what, uh, if you will, homespun remedies do you have for people who are listening as saying step one? I mean, you might say, well, I've been to the World Trade Center after its uh, collapse and, and, I, and I've worked uh, and been on location where there's been uh, major bodies of, of the planet misbehaving with torrents of rain and hurricanes and things of this nature uh, like Katrina. What is some very practical things, even if it's just like wrap yourself in a blanket? Yeah, I, I'm really big on what I call daily quiet time uh, and DQT, uh, I guess are the initials. And having a ritual in the morning when we get out of bed, I'm, I actually did a study where I statistically correlated um, making your bed with, with happiness. And it, there's a very real mathematical correlation you know, getting out of bed, making your bed um, is, uh, uh, believe it or not, very simple steps like that. And then taking before jumping into the day, having that daily quiet time where you make a cup of tea and you sit and get grounded and deep breathe. Um, those daily morning rituals are really important in setting the tone for the rest of the day. And if we jump out of bed and just are late and have the habit of waking up um, so we're in a rush, uh, that sets us in a trajectory of a little bit of chaos. Whereas if we get up a little earlier, have our morning tea, have our ritual, do our deep breathing, uh, read something inspirational, whatever that looks like to you, um, those, are, those are kind of the grounding principles for a better day, at least in my mind. I think there's some good science behind that, too. I'd like to revisit something that uh, we looked at briefly, and at the time when it was mentioned, I wanted to go into deeper detail, and I'd like to do that now, if we may. Uh, just a reminder to our audience, you're listening to Dr. Randall Bell. He is the author of a book called Post-Traumatic Thriving, The Art, Science, and Stories of Resilience. The issue of forgiveness. Um, not only do I think very often we fail to forgive others and um, their trespasses, um, but we sometimes are guilty of not forgiving our own trespasses. Um, where is the width and the and the breadth, if you will, of forgiveness in your uh, in your savannah as you see people with traumatic disturbances? Well, with forgiveness, I think the first thing we got to do is dispel the the lies we've been told and the myths we've been told that we forgive and forget. I mean, I can tell you, Tanya Brown will never forget that her sister was murdered or. JC will never forget that he made a horrible mistake and landed him in prison for over two decades. So we don't forget. The whole, the whole idea of healing from trauma is not to forget, but when the memory of the trauma goes through our mind, we're not triggered. In other words, our heart rate doesn't go up. We don't get that you know, out of control emotion. The, the memory can pass through our mind harmlessly and, and exit harmlessly. 
and not cause a re-traumatize from it all. So um, with forgiveness, you're, you're absolutely right. It's, there's both the ego and the social issues. And on the egocentric side, we, we've got to forgive ourselves, meaning we cut ourselves some break, a break. We don't make excuses. We take responsibility, but we say we've done all we can in terms of restitution, and it's time to close that chapter and move on. And yeah, on the social side with forgiving others, it's very difficult. Some people are just toxic, and some people are really downers and will keep pulling us down, and it's really essential that we maybe create some space or set some boundaries or get to get, get away altogether. But um, in terms of forgiving others, again, the idea is not to forget them. The idea is to uh, let the memory or an interaction transpire without us being re-triggered. And the deep breathing exercises can really help that. And also, it just takes a dose of time. There's no better way to say that you just got to let proper healing take place. And that may take a while. And just respecting that process. Not only in the research for this book, but in your career and the, the path that you have trod, what encounter has amazed you the most and been the most helpful for you to gain insight to dealing with people with traumatic disorders? Wow, that's a big question. Um, I, I think that it's just, it's, it's just the respect for those who make that decision to tackle it. I, I don't want to ever put down somebody who has who gets stuck in depression or, or um, because I haven't been through what they've been through. So I'm not trying to be judgmental, but I just have a lot of respect for those who just had it in them to flip that, flip that switch on uh, and, and say, you know what, I'm going to take this energy and just do something big. Um, I've seen it many times and it's, it's always, um, that magic moment, if you will, in this whole thing where, where people, the lights go on and people say, you know, I'm going to make it um, one step at a time in a, in a sensible way and not a fake, uh, you know, um, yeah, kind of, uh, you know, a little kid looking at Mount Everest to say, I'm going to climb that, but more in a, a balanced step day-to-day process. That's always enjoyable to watch that moment. Well, speaking of crisis, um, we have a nation that has been uh, through a tumultuous series of uh, of months, one year leading into the next, uh, with tremendous instability, uh, not only homeland but abroad as well. What recommendation do you have for persons uh, on a national scale? Because we are affected, you know. I mean, if if you are depressed about a work predicament or uh, a relationship and then you turn on the news every day and then added to that, you have the uh, additional weight of world issues which seem less than favorable uh, to most of persons on this globe, it affects you. Um, would you just recommend going down to the beach again and meditating and looking at the ocean waves? I mean, some people can't do that. Perhaps they can go to the woods and and uh, be Henry David Thoreau for a moment and, and contemplate. Um, what What is your prescription? I think nature is always a great place, whether you have the beach or a river or a pond or a stream or a, a nice park. Um, any any time you go out and look at the sky, look at the stars and, and connect with uh, nature. The, the news, I, I like the news and I like the media, um, but, you know, it, too much of anything is too much. And it can be re-traumatizing to not only carry your own stresses of the day and then listen to the news. And, and uh, we've got to moderate that like we've got to moderate anything. And I think that um, just, just having those quiet, relaxing moments where we kind of think things through and, and meditate um, and just a few deep breaths. Taking six deep breaths can literally drop your, your blood pressure. Little techniques like that really work. So just being aware of our physiology, being aware of that feeling of anxiety and doing something simple about it that kind of keeps it in check, all those things kind of together um, can bring healing and a, a more productive life. Some scars are discernible, they're visible. Uh, others are internal and hidden. You have a physical scar, I would imagine, from your childhood uh, with the open heart surgery because of your heart uh, defect at the age of 10. And um, uh, an indelicate way of putting it, but usually they have to crack and sore open um, your sternum and uh, open your chest. And so I would imagine to this day, although it may have uh, certainly 
uh, diminished in intensity. You you bear a scar on your chest. Is that correct? Well, actually, I was so young when I had my surgery. It's it's a big scar, but it wraps around my back. They had to take a rib out to to get in there. Okay, but you do have a scar. Yeah. Um, yeah. Some people say treasure your scars uh, and wear them almost like badges, not in a uh, in a way of trying to manufacture uh, sympathy. Uh, but rather as a means of saying that I survived, I can go on. This in, in, the, in the broad spectrum is not a bad thing. Um, do you look at your 10-year-old experience and say, I have this scar, and perhaps with people who have been physically intimate with you, they've questioned, oh, you've got a scar here, what's that? I remember Carly Simon, the singer, said uh, when she had um, a breast removed, she said, learn to be with people who will love your scars. Um, not a bad bit of advice. What do you say to this? Yeah, I mean, there's you can the, the old way I know didn't work, where I was ashamed and embarrassed and all of that. That just didn't work. And yeah, you you have to embrace it. You have to own it, like any trauma or any scar. Um, and just accepting it and owning it, and not um, uh, not no longer trying to hide it. And it is what it is, and this is who I am. Um, this is the way God made me, and that's that. That's it. I think there's kind of a refreshing aspect of that, as opposed to the whole shame and duck and hide thing. It, it, it's a, a much healthier way to heal from it. I can talk about it now with you, Alan. And my blood pressure is not going up as it used to, um, and and that's what healing looks like. It's just it's just it is what it is, and and uh, and owning it. Well, I'm always delighted to have people on the show who are interested in helping others. And that's very uh, evident that you are indeed dedicated to trying to help others. The book is entitled Post-Traumatic Thriving, The Art, Science and Stories of Resilience. And they're good stories at that. The author is Dr. Randall Bell, and I've been delighted to have him as my guest here on Watching America. So you are part of the fabric that makes this country great, and you are a beacon and a light of hope for many. Thank you so very much for being a part of Watching America. Alan, thank you. And, and thank you for the discussion. I've enjoyed every single second. Terrific. Thank you. And God bless. You've been listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our assistant producer, Jordan Christie. Gina Gamboni is our senior producer. Chuck Dowd is our executive producer. And Heather Mazzoni is chief of content. Bert Schmidt is our CEO. I'm watching America's creator and host, Dr. Alan Campbell. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.